Amazing things can happen when you sit down and you talk to people and you set a weekly schedule. In DSA, I don't have a big guidebook for how to expand community in my freaking sub caucus, but I do do a talk show. So I got guests and we met people in our community like for a couple hours per week. And so one of the people that came to those meetings was Lindsay Bollinger, just one of the coolest activists, educators, readers, sheroes that I've ever met. And it's super cool that like over the last few months, we've just done more and more stuff together and we're practically joined at the hip. Lindsay, how are you? I'm well, thank you for hyping me up so much. We have to, that's part of our job. Here. Yeah, that's <laughs> the, the whole thing of being, you know, doing an interview is you hype them up and then you ask them the questions that they're not ready to answer. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have any No, No, but that is, well, like, <laughs> here's, Lindsay, here's how we do interviews. We start with some softball questions about like, what's your story and what your journey is like right now. Then we get you mad. We get you fired up. We think of some stuff that'll piss you off. And then <laughs> we dig into your psyche and we really get like real revelations about who you are as a person and where we're going to go from here together. It's a great way to meet somebody. All right, let's do it. And at the end of it, people who are listening also want to do stuff with you, which is awesome. So Brandon already hinted at it. Tell us who you are. What led you into politics? How did you get here? Oh, gosh. Okay, um, well, my name is Lindsay. I have always been very interested in politics, funnily enough, because I grew up in a super apolitical family. So I guess my way of rebelling was just being um, incredibly into, unfortunately, in my youth, liberal politics. When I got to college, I started identifying probably more as like a democratic socialist. Although, to be completely honest, I didn't understand what that meant very well because I went to liberal arts school and all we read was classical liberalism. Um, so I didn't really right. have a great, yeah, I didn't, so I've read, oh my god, so many Enlightenment era authors. Um, so I didn't really have a good grasp on like, you know, kind of the divide between liberalism and socialism, you know, from reformism to revolution. Um, and listen, I'm just gonna say it, I think anybody who was a liberal and became a democratic socialist within like the last six months to a year probably has very little idea of what those words mean, but they're trying, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's so I never want to get mad at, mad at people who aren't like, quote unquote, where I am, because I'm like, I know where I was just like five years ago, four years ago, one year ago, six months ago, you know, and it really was in the past year having the free time that COVID-19 gave me because I got furloughed. So having that free time to really read political theory made a big difference for me. And that's when I made the leap from being what really was like a rad lib to being like an actual socialist, reading more and more theory, and eventually landing where I am now, which is probably closest to Marxist-Leninism. It's so funny to me because the way people talk about DSA, it could be anything from like the second coming of Stalin to like Nancy Pelosi's slightly more liberal younger sister. But I do think that one of the big utilities of it is that it gets people, I guess, desensitized to the idea of socialism. And it sort of provides that same jumping off point you were just talking about, like where you know you get into it, you no longer find this thing so scary, you get enough grounding to get curious. And then the more you look into it, the more radicalized you become because of course you do anyone who actually looks at these problems up close immediately becomes radicalized because they're horrific yes absolutely and i mean you know with covid it was just impossible to um you know it, it, that made right. it impossible to hold on to any kind of illusion that things can possibly improve under our current material relations it's just it's not gonna happen 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to look at 2020 and just the failure of so many governments to properly respond to anything and think, uh-oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, how are these systems supposed to keep working? This is not good, you know? And especially because I think any young person kind of knows that we have a bigger problem looming ahead of us, and that's climate change. So if we, yes. can't, if we can't deal with a speed bump like this, how are we going to deal when we hit the brick wall? Of course, yeah, seeing people's unwillingness to engage in any sort of collective action of the barest minimum, which is, you know, just like social distance and wear a mask. Yeah, that makes me very fearful for what is going to happen when shit really hits the fan and we're in an existential struggle with climate change. I mean, we already are, but it's not as immediately obvious to us living in the imperial core. Well, you know, the grim horror of this situation is that climate change more than likely will not wipe out the human race, right? We are probably not going to go extinct because of this. Unfortunately. Um, (laughs) Tell me about it. But what we also cannot avoid is hundreds of thousands or even millions of people are going to die because of it. Uh, And, you know, depending on how long you stretch this time frame out, it could be unbelievable numbers of humans die because of this. There are a lot of people who are currently in charge of everything. Not a majority of people, mind you, a 1% or so of people, which still constitutes a lot of people because there's, a you know, 7 billion of us. They have zero reason to change any of it because mm-hmm. they realize that they're going to be probably in the group that survives. So long as things stay the same, so long as they continue to be in control of and in charge of everything, they will be in the group that gets to survive and they don't actually care about the people who won't. Right. Yeah, I'm um, I'm glad you said that because I want to be clear. I was joking when I said that, unfortunately, the human race won't go extinct um, because obviously the people who are going to be hit hardest, who are already being, you know, adversely affected by climate change, are always going to be poor people in the global Lindsay, you're actually super fortunate because you are on a podcast that has like multiple episodes about climate fatalism and coping mechanisms and humor as a coping mechanism like this is the space where no one's going to come after you for making that joke. Okay, cool. Um, to your point, yeah, I think my biggest like concern, you know, for for the next few decades is going to be the rise in like eco-fascist tendencies that we're already seeing. You know, I think in a large way, Brexit was, you know, um, an eco-fascist reaction. What was an issue that got you really fired up and motivated like five years ago? Have your big political priorities changed or have you had a change really on the means to achieve those priorities? Talk about that. No, my big big political priorities have definitely changed. So five years ago, I would have been 21. Um, I would have just graduated college um, around this time, actually. And I was pretty politically active um, in college. My big thing was sexual assault awareness and community combating um, sexual assault on college campuses, including my own. And I think, you know, if you had asked me then, that would have been my top political priority, just because that's where, you know, I was going to college. That's what my political world was. It had a lot to do with, you know, with gender and sexual violence and patriarchy and the intersections of that with, you know, with colorism and racism and like, you know, gendered racism and racialized misogyny. I think now, It's not that I don't still think that feminism is important. It is. I think now I've just gotten to a point where feminism is the very lowest rung of political engagement for me. Like, to me, I'm like, if you're not a feminist, like, why are we even talking? You're not even trying. Like, to me, that's like someone... Right. Right. Like, to me, that's just someone admitting, like, actually, I'm a racist. Like... (laughs) 
it's like well we don't really have anything in common so like there's nothing to talk about at that point i think your experience Um, is pretty common i think a lot of women and femme and you know sort of people who have experienced gender oppression come to this sort of leftist space through that lens of like, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, it was really shitty for me. And also there's all these people it's so much worse for. Holy shit, worse, you know? And one of the things I say all the time is that privilege is necessarily unable to see itself. Yeah, Like privilege is not something where, you know, you recognize you're getting one over on somebody else. Privilege is just where you expect more. Right. And so until you start to really understand your own marginalization, it is not really possible to understand someone else's marginalization. And once you reach that sort of synthetic point of understanding both your own and someone else's marginalization, that's when you start to really understand these things as systems, you know, and the more you learn about different kinds of marginalization, the clearer this picture of white male cisgender neurotypical supremacy becomes because there is an ideal person Mm -hmm. who is the sort of philosopher god king that these people are looking for and every step away from that image of that person you are the less power you have Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so the thing is in the same way that privilege can't see itself you can only really see privilege through this outline that gets created when you start looking at everybody else's marginalization Yes. When we talk about like class solidarity, right? When we talk about the sort of material struggle that centers each and every one of us every single day, it is necessary to educate each other in our own experiences of marginalization. And I think that's one of the things actually that DSA is becoming very useful for is it is creating these sort of meeting places where people are actually starting to compare notes, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, And I think, you know, having class at the center of it, you know, in DSA is really, really important because, um, you know, I would say my other big, the biggest change actually in my politics five years ago to now is centering class and center, you know, I would actually use the term caste instead of class, you know, because I feel like, you know, when we say class, um, people can get a little confused and think that we're talking strictly about, you know, how much money you make or how much wealth you have in assets, when in reality, your class in America is dictated by all of your intersecting identities, right? Like being a wealthy white woman is not the same thing as being a wealthy white man, which is not the same thing as being a poor white man or being, you know, all these different ways. I think, unfortunately, you know, growing up, my, my feminism really lacked that intersectionality with class um like i have like a pretty decent understanding of like critical race theory but really oh no not the critical race theory (laughs) not the critical race theory um but yeah i really did not have a good understanding of like how that interacts with like property relation yeah you know what how you know misogyny especially is a result of the particular type of property relation that we have Yeah, I think it's important that you mention caste as a concept because people tend to think sometimes of caste as something that you can't move between, but actually most caste systems did allow people to move. It was just really hard. And that's what we have. You can change your class or caste in America, but it's hard. It's so hard. You have to be willing to literally, you know, bend over backwards to the caste that you're trying to get into. You know, that's where people like end up sacrificing sacrificing so much of themselves and that's where we see like assimilation versus acceptance and things like that yeah 
Right. I think that in the primary difference between looking at, you know, class versus caste is that there are aspects of caste that are immovable because even if you somehow, you know, against all of the odds, ascend the ladder of economic mobility, there are still going to be aspects of your identity that are going to limit where within this higher realm you can ascend to because, you know, even no matter how wealthy you are, you know, if you are not white, if you are queer, if you are not a man, you're still going, you're not going to have the same levels of access and privilege that a white man ascending this ladder would have. Even if you just weren't there originally, you know, I mean, that Mm -hmm. is the thing is that like, there's yeah. There are billionaires that are white straight men that whine about the fact that they aren't let into the clubs and they should find something else to fucking obsess about, but they are right. They aren't let into the clubs. Mm-hmm. So I want to um kind of loop back around to what you were saying there about being born into it, right? Because I really think the best way to understand this is as something you are born into for exactly the reasons y'all are talking about with like the clubs and with other immovable aspects of your identity, you know, being included or excluded from certain rooms, right? Like class, which is not the same thing as wealth. It's not the same thing as how much money you have. Mm -hmm. It is who you know. And it is so much easier to the point where I would argue that, again, it's not functionally possible that these are outlier situations that we shouldn't even be really holding up as like examples relative to the problem. But you will never have the same bond as people who went to the same boarding school and then went to the same college and then worked in the same business rooms, learning directly how to push and move empires, right? You will never, ever have that. And at the end of the day, even if you manage to make your way in to those rooms, you are still not them and they will turn on you in a heartbeat and this is just upper class culture right upper class culture is backbiting it is dishonest it is vitriolic you know these are not people who like each other these are people who have the same pathos and all of the ugly awful things that they do to everyone around them are first done to them by their own fucking people because they're constantly doing it to each other so like this this sort of idea that like even if you can buy your way into the room like yeah maybe but you're never going to be them when you get sick and fall they're not going to help you they might help each other there's a very strong attachment to family in this culture you take care of your family but if they are not literally your family you let them fucking die so there is nothing you can do that will actually get you in with these people the way that being born into it gets you in with these people We were talking about eco-fascism like 15 minutes ago, and I was fascinated by it. The thing that I had in my mind as we talked about eco-fascism was that we are seeing a rise of authoritarianism in Mm -hmm. countries around the world. Mm -hmm. We saw it in Turkey, we saw it in, we're seeing it in the Philippines, we're seeing it here in the United States as well. In Brazil, in the UK, um, yeah. What are the alternatives? When are they coming? And why is it so bad now? And maybe that's a good place to start. I hate to like be this person, but the way I understand it, the only viable alternative to ecofascism, specifically because it's going to require some kind of like probably violent force. I know that that's not what people want to hear. Um, it is going to take drastic action to combat, you know, the worst ills of climate change. 
Well, here's the deal is that a lot of people just kind of imagine like this big like movie style wall of water just swallows their city and they die. Um, And that's not how climate change is working at all. Climate change is already in effect. It's already changing things about our food system. It's changing things about where people can and can't live. And that's going to be the biggest thing is that we are going to have unprecedented migration and we're already seeing it to some extent. And no one is ready for it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's like the, to me, that's like the scary thing that the system can't accommodate, really, is that we, we aren't going to be able to handle this people moving around. Well, I think the scarier thing is that the system can't accommodate it, so it will reject it and fight it very violently, right? And that's where ecofascism will come from, right? I mean, that's in a large part what drove Brexit was, um, you know, had to do with the EU's refugee quotas, um, you know, people coming from the Middle East over, you know, a civil war that in part was driven by climate change, right? Like these overlapping crises, obviously, of regime change, Western destabilization, but also, you know, unprecedented drought and famine and happening because of climate change, because of desertification. And yeah, and I mean, we saw, you know, how violently the Anglosphere is willing to react to that when they see, you know, their quote unquote borders threatened. And in large part, the immigrant crisis at the US-Mexico border is driven by climate change. And we, you know, obviously with Donald Trump and building the wall, like I would say that that is, um, you know, if not outright, then definitely like proto-ecofascism. Yeah. Seeing how nations have treated each, uh, you know, their own populations over the last few years with like excessive brutality, lack of concern for life, it makes you really worried about migration in the future, how people are going to be able to, you know, accommodate tons of people coming in. It's super disturbing. On a separate topic, Although I guess it's sort of related. A lot of these bad relationships that we have with people in other countries are exacerbated by the media. You know, the same media that we all rightfully criticize for the way that they cover immigrants uh, and the dehumanizing treatment that, you know, marginalized groups get in the media. uh, That is the same media complex that produces like the war machine and agitates for foreign conflicts and agitation in other countries. The media has a huge messaging impact on our ability to recognize other humans as humans. Uh, There's just a lot of linguistics with how world events are reported and how they are interpreted by the human brain. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say Americans are the most propagandized people in the world. Um, The manufacturing of consent in the United States is so strong and so, you know, alarmingly so that in many ways it doesn't require that much like conspiratorial manipulation in order to get people to, you know, accept whatever push for war, whatever push for, you know, dehumanization the media is engaging in in service to the military industrial complex because at this point you know we've been living with that you know for for i mean arguably since the beginning of america but really you know since the 90s for sure you know with like the cnn 24 hour news cycle broadcasting the first persian gulf war live 24 7 um you know i feel like that's really inundated american people with this sense that you know war is normal war is not only acceptable but desirable so it's very, I, I hate to use this word, but it's very Orwellian. Yeah. And I mean, I think it sort of serves 
the sort of larger need that a lot of people who end up in power have to feel in control, if that makes sense. Like, I think that there's this sort of understandable human impulse to want things to be orderly and to feel like you can trust other people. And then I think that there are also certain people who are themselves very dishonest and manipulative and therefore assume everyone else will behave that way as well. And I think the sort of violent, oppressive force that we're talking about, like wanting to build really strong police forces or build, you know, imperialist military forces throughout the world, right? Those sort of stem from that same place of being an untrustworthy person and therefore assuming everyone else is also untrustworthy. I don't know if that made sense or not, but... No, yeah, it did. And I'll also say, you mentioned a little bit about just like categorization and stuff. I'll say for the record, you know, when people say like, oh, capitalism is human nature, I never agree with that stuff. But when we talk about aspects of human nature that I actually think would be challenging to overcome and possibly necessary to overcome to un some extent to like fix some of the problems in society, obsession with categorization is a really interesting one. We love to categorize stuff. It is not always a good thing. <laughs> Lindsay, what's the foreign policy thing or incident that got you thinking really structurally about either foreign policy or foreign policy in the media or whatever it is? Like, is it something that you read and researched or is it something that you experienced or what? Um, definitely like being Chinese American and, you know, living in the United States right now through COVID definitely opened my eyes to how consent is manufactured in real time. But I think like what really got me thinking about it was, you know, now being an adult and looking back at 9-11 um, and the Iraq war and the invasion of Afghanistan and then Syria after that. And just, you know, learning some of the details, you know, for instance, about how you know, back in the 90s, the groundwork was laid for the invasion into Iraq the first time with, you know, this what ended up being a completely false testimony about war crimes that Saddam Hussein was allegedly committing. You know, there was that very sensationalized story in the news about how Iraqi soldiers were pulling babies out of incubators. Um, and that turned out to be completely false. But the media just ran with it purposefully. I don't know if they knew that it was true, but they very clearly didn't make any attempt to verify whether or not it was accurate because it turned out that the person who testified was the Kuwaiti ambassador's niece. Um, and that is not like, you know, something that should require very much journalistic skill to uncover. And so learning about that, reading this book, The Management of Savagery by Max Blumenthal, and of course, The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, um, is what really opened my eyes to just how how effective news media is in the United States at obfuscating the truth, at, um, you know, sometimes outright fabricating the truth, um, you know, and seeing these like recurring patterns of how consent is manufactured in order to serve the military industrial complex. So right now, you know, you know, I'm seeing a lot of the same things that led up to the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm seeing that being repeated in the media with regards to China. What are some of the most pernicious things that you've seen like the last three or four months? I mean, we live in Atlanta and we've had, I mean, before, during and after the shooting, because the Bi even if we go back to the Biden campaign, there was a bunch of gross stuff that didn't get covered in the media as much as it should have. With regards to China? Um, yeah, like, we're, we're the guy that's going to stand. China's plotting to take your jobs. Right. Joe Biden's going to stand up to them. Trump's the guy that's, that's sucking up to Xi Jinping. Right. <laughs> 
we had that even before we had the shootings and all this stuff. We had weird xenophobic tropes on both sides trying to appeal to the same block of people. Yeah, I definitely was like disheartened and disturbed by the saber rattling between Biden and Trump during the general about basically like who could be tougher on China as if that was any kind of like valid campaign point or, you know, even relevant to the American people (laughs) in any kind of way. Obviously, you know, with during Trump's presidency, this very obvious like xenophobic idea that COVID-19 was like created in a lab by Chinese scientists, that it was some sort of bioweapon that was really like disturbing to hear and now Biden is you know revisiting that you know albeit in a little more in a softer racist way by you know he's now asking for who to have an investigation into the Wuhan virology lab to see whether or not you know there was any kind of like obfuscation or any kind of you know secrecy around the advent of the COVID-19 virus so like that's disturbing to to see um, because there's already been like pretty extensive investigation that that that's was not the case. And when we talk about this stuff, like it's not like we're just all being woke and complaining about like whatever we see and hear on the news. I mean, we had literally a mass shooting just like a couple months ago in this city. Yeah. Yeah. um, And, you know, that was obviously it was really personally devastating when that happened. Um, It happened one county over from where I grew up and where I was living at the time. Um, It was really scary, but it was also like maddening to see, you know, WAPO and NYT and all these fucking blue check liberals on Twitter, you know, being like, oh, this is so sad. Like, fight Asian hate. We shouldn't, you know, engage in xenophobia. And And I'm like, some of y'all are the exact same bitches who are tweeting like day in and day out about how like China is creating bioweapons or how China is oppressing Tibet or how Taiwan should be a free country or how, you know, Xi Jinping is genociding Uyghurs and I'm like you guys can't say this shit and then turn around and be like oh my god how could this terrible hate crime happen what could have possibly caused this I don't understand yeah and I think there's this disconnect that conservatives really lean into it but even liberals just blatantly take advantage of it a lot where you know these words aren't supposed to mean anything but over the last few years we've seen repeatedly that you know whether it's xenophobia or anti-semitism or queerphobia whichever of these things gets platformed a lot it happens more like this is a real thing that happens I watched uh, this very long YouTube video talking about how the origins of like vaccine phobia literally came from the spike came from cable news reporting on the scientific study. And when journalists looked into the scientific study, the doctor was being paid by a vaccine manufacturer to make up like symptoms in kids and like put the children through extreme invasive medical procedures without the consent of the parents, sometimes without their knowledge of like the full scope of, I mean, to do things like tests for autism, you've got to go through like rigorous stuff. Yeah, it turns out you can just speak horrible nonsense into reality. Yeah, and because of our current financial incentives, like you make a lot of money speaking horrible nonsense into reality. Yeah. Lindsay, what are, unfortunately, it's hard to even get help from the political class. I wanted to say, what can the political class do to, like, stand up to this kind of stuff? And you've got Yang over here in New York uh, just doing the exact opposite. What a bum. What a bum. (laughs) Yeah. 
I really don't know because it's not in the interest of the political class to combat any of this, right? <laughs> America always needs a boogeyman. Um, you know, for a long time, that boogeyman was Iraq. Well, you know, that's done. Then it was Putin and Russia, you know, during the whole Russiagate bullshit that happened, you know, between 2015. And I mean, I guess it's still going on in some people's minds. I don't even know. But, you know, it's, it's never going to be in the interest of the political class or the media, quite frankly to not have some sort of, you know, very like dehumanized, very othered, you know, kind of orientalist uh, boogeyman to turn to, to, you know, I don't know if it's like to distract people from how shitty things are here. If it's, I think a lot of it is, you know, to always be able to draw a comparison to say like, oh, well, like, you know, you think your life in the United States is bad. At least you don't live in like scary communist China or something. I mean, what it would, what we're really talking about would be for someone in the political class to completely betray every class interest they have. And I, I don't really see that happening. Yeah. And I think that's why we end up seeing things like the hate crime bill and immediately on the heels of the hate crime bill feeding the same fire that made a hate crime bill seem appealing to these people in the first place. They are fundamentally unwilling to look inward on these problems, which means they have to constantly find a new way of externalizing it, right? And I think that makes it almost unavoidable that such things should happen, you know, that they should be so obviously hypocritical and yet somehow seem not even to be aware of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, liberals love a good performative action with no meaning. (laughs) It's just, it's their favorite. Um, Yeah, and that's really all that I see coming from the political class. I mean, I think the biggest disappointment to me has been, um, you know, the squad or, you know, AOC in particular. You know, she spoke very strongly, you know, condemning xenophobia after the spree shooting in Atlanta, even though literally just that week, she went before the floor uh, on the house to introduce a bill to reaffirm America's commitment to a free Tibet. Right. So it's, yeah, I just, I'm like, it's not, I, you know what I mean? I'm like, I don't know if AOC is aware that those two things are in contradiction to one another. I, she doesn't seem like a dumbass. <laughs> if you wouldn't mind, I am a dumbass. Could you explain to me what, I guess, the your understanding of the situation in Tibet is? Because I For sincerely sure. don't know shit. For sure. So Tibet has long been of interest to the United States because there is a class of essentially like land landlords, landowners in Tibet that has always been discontented with being under CPC rule, Chinese Communist Party rule, because before the CPC took over China, Tibet was actually a feudal theocracy, right? So the Dalai Lama is both the religious figurehead and the political figurehead of, you know, Tibetan society. And were Tibet allowed to secede and return to pre-CPC conditions, basically the Dalai Lama and the landed aristocracy that he represents would have, you know, like absolute rule over the people of Tibet who are like quite literally serfs in many cases. So because of this discontented landed class, it's like an easy foothold for American national security interests. So like the CIA, um, the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a CIA cutout that is an organization that purports to spread American democracy around the world. Um, You can probably guess what that actually means um so they I assume it means bombs it's a mix of bombs and a lot of like subterfuge and a lot of like 
yeah, a lot of, you know, like in some cases, like literally Asian provocateurs. It's a lot of that. So yeah, Tibet, it's Tibet, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and Taiwan are, you know, kind of the four places where the US has footholds, where they have, you know, a lot of CIA operatives stationed, where they do a lot of work with the NED. Um, In some cases, they directly fund and arm violent separatist groups. And they're doing this in hopes, right, of destabilizing China so that they can um, have greater influence themselves in the region. We got to talk about Hong Kong later, but Tibet is an op. That's been my take for a long time. The Dalai Lama is such an op. Tibet Tibet sucks. They're awful. Read about Tibet. They're wired like we're stopping all of our human rights work for, I mean, like, whatever. They're not great either. That's my point. Yeah, if Americans are actually interested in the people of Tibet being quote unquote free, which to me, you know, freedom is not the freedom to choose to starve. Freedom is the ability to live a fulfilling (laughs) life because my material needs are being taken care of. If Americans are actually interested in the Tibetan people having that, they would be in favor of the CPC remaining in control over the region. So what is the CPC currently doing in Tibet to sort of mitigate that influence of, you know, the theocratic influence of the Dalai Lama and sort of his religious cohort? Well, basically, like they did a lot of land redistribution back in the 50s and 60s, and that's why people there are mad. So like, I guess my question is, was it successful? Like, did redistributing the land the way they did allow for people to sort of create that material security that you're talking about? There's definitely more material security now. Yeah. I mean, I think when we're talking about China during that time period and like human rights and survival, I think we're talking about unavoidable catastrophic numbers no matter what. Like the entire history of that period and like we could go further back in history and talk about why that was, but like it's hard to to like there are tremendous like if we say numerically fought poverty better than anywhere numerically, the numbers are staggering. Yeah. Like I think one of the things that when we like stakes of everything that happens in China is so massive because of the number of humans that are directed by those policies that sometimes groups claim successes based on numbers or point to catastrophe based on numbers and probably the the answers of whether these were or were not beneficial policies are probably infinitely more complicated than the numbers were staggering because they always are. I'm sure. I think there's this tendency to place blame where it doesn't belong because a lot of people struggle with this concept of like actions that you do now having future consequences. It's like the me reaping, me sowing meme. Yeah. You know, like where like pretty much every time there's been a successful like leftist, socialist, communist revolution of any kind, it comes right after the utter collapse of capitalism in that country, right? Right. So, so you have a with, worst case scenario to start with. That's exactly. So so then people go, oh, why did they have famines for the first couple decades or things like that? And it's like because they inherited completely broken shit and had to fix it. Right. Um, and hopefully it didn't come across when I asked if it worked as though I was like. No, you're allowed to. Th- oh my God, I, I'm just sincerely <laughs> curious. Like, you know. Oh, yeah. No. And I'm sorry. I don't have a more detailed answer. Sure, sure. And I mean, I know we're, you know, decades away now. So it's like, well, now we can finally start to look and see like, okay, they did these experiments. How did it go? 
Right. Uh, and I'm I mean, so curious about that. Maybe we can do that for a future episode or something. We can research it and actually do like a deep dive because that would be fascinating. I would love to recommend someone to talk to y'all about that. He is one of my closest friends. He actually did the China um, media workshop with me at the general meeting in April. Um, so I'll definitely give you all his contact info. The amount of knowledge that he has in his brain about foreign affairs and just like foreign policy in general is staggering like it is like a wikipedia's worth of knowledge um so he would have better answers for you than i do but i guess yeah what i can say is that um you know before the communist revolution china was a primarily agrarian country it was very very poor um wealth was extremely concentrated in a very small group of like um essentially like hereditary nobles and aristocrats now the there is a growing like capitalist class in china um which concerns me i know it concerns a lot of socialists but at the same time the cpc has lifted literally 900 million people out of poverty so that it's a it's a lot of people (laughs) yeah that's significant to say the least yeah Yeah. it's like it's it's insane you know as of 2021 i mean you can you know take this with a grain of salt because this is you know the cpc's own line um but they say that they have eliminated absolute poverty according to un un standards of like what you know what dollar per day amount of income is absolute poverty yeah I mean, I don't think it can be to an extent overstated how much the CPC was able to like do this unbelievable turnaround because China is able to economically compete and often dominate us now. And we mm-hmm. had every possible advantage to get us here, <laughs> whereas the CPC had to like drive the car out of the ditch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while I do think there is tons of room to argue about whether one policy or another may have been more effective. The fact is that like China post-opium war was completely ravaged by imperialism, by the same imperial powers that have carved up and ruined the entire fucking planet. And the process of modernization happened in an extremely rapid period that like has never been done before in the human race. And um, that now it's like one of the world's strongest economies. We can all have meetings and dig into the details from there, though. (laughs) But no, it really it really is like pretty staggering. Um, And, you know, it just shows like what is possible when people work together instead of competing and like what is possible when you have a planned economy instead of, you know, a quote unquote market economy, which, you know, isn't a real thing. Yeah, (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned the opium war. So I didn't know if you wanted to circle back around to Hong Kong. Let's do it. Let me just say that was one of our first episodes. Episodes. That was especially it was it was not just one of our first, but it was one of our first episodes that was popular. People liked it because we tried to actually get educated a little bit before we talked about it. Unlike a lot of people that were commenting at the time. And um, yeah, I think. We should do another episode entirely about Hong Kong if you're interested, because I know it's something of very great interest to our listeners. Okay, sounds good. Let's get out of here. Everybody, this has been another great episode. Lindsay Bollinger, you're going to be like, hopefully, regular on this show if we can if we can afford you, if we can get you, if we can carve out time in your schedule, whatever, just because you're dope. You're always doing good stuff and you have a great mind for executing stuff, which is hard to do sometimes. Thank you so much. I'm happy to come back anytime y'all will have me. Is there anything you're super excited to talk about or share that's happening in your personal life or your organizing world or your Goodreads group or anything like that you want to plug? 
Um, I guess reading group wise, my sci-fi reading group is about to start The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. I know that is a really popular work. It's my first time reading it, so I'm super excited. Um, Plug your Twitter. Oh, my Twitter is at Lindsay underscore Ray. That is L-I-N-D-S-I underscore R-A-E. Lindsay Bollinger, glad to have you on. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Glad to be here.